Good evening, everyone. Good evening and welcome. Thank you for coming. A tremendous amount of energy and talent and enthusiasm in the room. So this is the second big event of the day, the Pope's Address at Congress, and, um, and then this. Um, uh, I know this one's more important, but I thought he deserved a nod at least. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us for the first session of the Religions and Practice of Peace Colloquium this year. We have a great uh, program lined up. <clears throat> a couple of initial uh, just housekeeping announcements. We are video, video recording the session. So if you prefer not to be taped, um, please tell Bob who's doing the video and we will um, um, find a way of excising you, just from the video. Um, uh, everyone is welcome to continue enjoying dinner during the sessions. We ask that if you get up, uh, that you kindly try your best to avoid walking in front of the camera if possible. So find your way to the food um, surreptitiously. Those of you who are seated already or about to get seated, we expect to have a fairly full house tonight. <clears throat> so please fill all the gaps and rows to facilitate people's um, quickly finding open seats as they trickle in a little bit late because we're trying to keep on a tight schedule. I'd like to start by extending our really warm appreciation to our guest speaker, Reverend Susan Hayward, uh, who's one of our alums. Uh, he actually gave up a ticket to be at a, a, a gathering to see the Pope today, so she knew where the action was. Um, uh, so Susan, welcome. Uh, Susan also, uh, this, more will be said about this later, but uh, just hot off the press, the uh, editor of this wonderful book, Women, Religion and Peacebuilding, um, which has uh, just come out about a week ago, pretty well a week ago. So, um, so honestly, we're right on the action. Um, <laughs> Um, so very uh, pleased to welcome Susan here, um, uh, and also very pleased to welcome um, our co-sponsor, the Women's Studies and Religion Program at Harvard Divinity School, and its director, friend, and colleague, Professor Anne Browdy, who will be moderating the session uh, for us. And also to the RPP team and student assistants who have done so much over many weeks to make this series and this event uh, possible. There's a lot of hard work has gone into this. Uh, especially on, uh, by um, Lizzie Hood, as you know, who's a um, uh, wonderful energy behind uh, uh, all of this. So, Liz, thank you, and thank you for uh, all of that team of, of, of uh, student assistants who have really helped. So this monthly co colloquium series convenes a cross-disciplinary working group of faculty, experts, alums, and graduate students from across Harvard schools and the surrounding area to explore topics and cases in religions and the practice of peace. The working group members are seated in this section up front here, um, and we've given them name tags so you can identify them. We're grateful to have affiliates of the Harvard Divinity School, the Harvard Law School, the Kennedy School of Government, the School of Education, the Medical School, the Business School, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Design. This really is one Harvard in one place. The faculty members bring expertise from many of our excellent Harvard programs, such as the Women's Studies and Religion Program and the Religious Literacy Project here at HDS, the Pluralism Project, the Al-Walid Islamic Studies Program, the Islam in the West Program, the Harvard International Negotiation Program, the Program in Negotiation at the Law School, and the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. So <clears throat> we really are beginning to um, uh, spread tentacles into the whole university once we get our hands on the endowment. 
<clears throat> and special thanks to our working group colleagues joining us from beyond Harvard, from UMass Boston, the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, the Hartford Seminary, and American University. So welcome everyone. This is quite a, 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 a distinguished array. We're doing this in essence because um, the scale of the problems we are facing as a human species, locally, regionally, and globally, is massive and unprecedented and will require an unprecedented degree of human cooperation to surmount. And this was really the message of the Pope today. Uh, our 21st century is demanding of us a new style of leadership, one that seeks to reshape our relationships, our policies, and our institutions in keeping with the highest of our spiritual and human ideals. A leadership style that makes real bridge building across religions and cultures part of the standard order of business and that is committed to innovative exploration and application of effective non-violent approaches. The basic premise of the Religions and the Practice of Peace initiative that we launched at HDS and Harvard last year is that if our own and future generations around the world are ever to enjoy sustained peace and well-being, religious and spiritual traditions will have an indispensable role to play in that peace. Though some had predicted that religion would become a thing of the past, it's now clear that it is still a vital and central element of life for the vast majority of people on the planet, and by all indications will remain so. Although we in the academy and certainly the media have dedicated a great deal of focus to the ways in which religion has been used to incite violence, even a cursory review of history, near or distant, makes evident that religious and spiritual resources have played enormous roles in inspiring and informing efforts to create a more compassionate, a more just, and a harmonious world. I have certainly seen both of these things play out, um, uh, religion as a, an instrument, an excuse for violence, um, but I've also witnessed that during the troubles in, in Belfast and Northern Ireland, um, where sectarian strife led to many years of, of, of really bad violence, yet religious resources were also key to healing and reconciliation. Humani humanity simply cannot afford our inattention to these uh, social trends and legacies in religious communities and the valuable lessons and wisdom they have to offer for transforming conflict, making enemies into friends, and cultivating just and lasting peace. Lessons valuable even to those of us who in our scholarship and practice may come from more secular perspectives, as many of you do. And no matter where on the planet we come from and what may be our background and orientation, these examples make us see that there are in fact powerful precedents for peace building in other religious communities and traditions and much goodwill and many positive efforts happening out there upon which we can surely build together to forge more cooperative relationships and a better world for all of us. Given the critical importance of this field, Harvard University, with its position of thought leadership and global reach, and certainly we here at the Divinity School with our faculty's deep expertise in the study of world religious traditions, theology and ministry, I think we have here an ethical responsibility to make this a major ongoing institutional priority for this century. We have many of the resources, many of the gifts, a lot of talent, and a lot of opportunity, and hence a lot of responsibility. Because peace efforts inspired and informed by religion are complex and multidimensional, and we understand this, we're not naive about this, Tapping aspects of human experience and social life from the theological and psychological to the institutional and structural 
They call for creative cross-disciplinary study at a level of depth that cannot be achieved merely by a handful of religious peace-building specialists alone. So cross-disciplinary study is vital. Although a field of religious peace-building has been blossoming and making great strides here in the United States over the past two decades, as our guest speaker will touch upon tonight, we're making the case here in, H in, in the RPP that this vast and acutely consequential subject is one in which everyone in higher education, as well as leaders across sectors globally, indeed all of us as global citizens, we all have a major stake in this, and to which um, each and every one of us has a unique and valuable contribution to make. I'm convinced that if we pursue the, um, uh, this collectively, concertedly, and wisely here at Harvard, and if we can catalyze momentum for this at other institutions of learning worldwide, we can help turn the tide towards building a more harmonious world for our own and future generations. So it's both with a sense of humility at how much we still have to learn about this topic, um, but with high aspirations that we're delighted to be engaging this year with one another and with a fantastic lineup of guest speakers. As you can see already from our fall announcement, we really have got a wonderful program ahead. We're particularly excited to be launching this year's series with this session, co-sponsored by the Women's Studies and Religion program at Harvard Divinity School, who have been great friends and partners uh, during this adventure and featuring a presentation by HDS graduate Reverend Susan Hayward on the vitally important yet too often neglected topic of women, religion, and peace building. So before we get started, a, a brief note about our format. As a step towards um, uh, growing the RPP initiative this year, we've expanded the, this colloquium series in three ways. First, we're inviting um, in a diverse array of guest speakers, so we're inviting in a diverse array of guest speakers from outside Harvard to come and engage with us, uh, so spreading our net a little bit. Second, we're giving the graduate students in the RPP working group an opportunity to delve more deeply into the colloquium topics in a parallel year-long course facilitated by Jeff Soule, um, who's uh, over here, um, uh, who's an HDS graduate and chairman of the Peace Appeal Foundation, um, uh, to, to whom we'd like to, uh, also to give a very warm welcome as HDS's inaugural lecture on the practice of peace. Jeff, great to have you with us. And, and third, we're inviting all of you from the wider Harvard community all over this campus and the general public all over the city to join us in the conversation and we hope to find new ways to get involved and to make a contribution. So we're experimenting this year with a special three-part program that integrates these public sessions with the activities of the RPP Working Group and the graduate course. We'll start each session with a presentation by our guest speaker, then follow that up with a period of moderated discussion between the speaker and the RPP Working Group. The graduate students who bring a remarkably cross-disciplinary set of experiences and talent from across the university have pre prepared for tonight by doing readings already assigned by Reverend Hayward, and we'll, be ticking, and we'll be kicking off the working group's discussion with a few key questions. In the final phase of the program, we'll open the conversation up to the rest of the audience, since we know that many of you joining us here tonight come with great interest, and in some cases, very substantial experience and expertise in this area. So with that, I'd like to turn over the reins to 
my uh, colleague and friend, Professor Anne Browdy, Director of the Women's Studies and Religion Program and Senior Lecturer at H.T. Austin American uh, Religious History, who will introduce our uh, speaker tonight and moderate the program. Anne, thank you very much. Well, it is a real honor to um, have the opportunity to introduce today's speaker and also to inaugurate this, uh, what looks like it will be a wonderful year of the religion and the practices of peace colloquium. I just um, want to start by thanking David Hampton uh, for the effort to bring this about in all his spare time from being dean of the Divinity School. Um, uh, and to say what a wonderful collaboration this is for the Women's Studies and Religion program. More and more of our scholars are coming to us from conflict zones. And the, when our Harvard faculty review the 100 or so applications we get every year to look for the best work that's being done in Women's Studies and Religion, I'm sorry to say that they are finding much of that cutting edge work coming from people who are studying conflict and its resolutions. Um, and so um, uh, it's wonderful to have Susan here today to draw our attention to this. Um, we were chatting earlier about a day long gone when HDS faculty did not all approve of uh, faculty bringing academic work to public discourse on current topics. Um, Dean Hempton is leading our school in a different direction um, that uh, um, the Women's Studies program is really happy to be part of. So it's a great pleasure uh, finally to have the chance to introduce Reverend Susan Hayward uh, who is Director of Religion and Inclusive Societies at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, and she graduated from HDS in 2007. Um, she directs the, institutes, the Institute of Peace's effort to advance conflict prevention, resolution, and reconciliation projects targeting the religious sector, and she coordinates the Institute's overall programming in Burma, Myanmar. Uh, since she joined the Institute in 2007, her fieldwork has focused on Colombia, Iraq, Burma, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka. From 2010 to 2012, she coordinated an initiative exploring the intersection of women, religion, conflict, and peacebuilding in partnership with the Berkeley Center at Georgetown University and the World Faiths Development Dialogue. Prior to joining the uh, Institute of Peace. Reverend Hayward worked with the Academy of Educational Development's office in Colombo, Sri Lanka, as a fellow of the Program on Negotiation um, at Harvard Law School and with the Conflict Resolution Program at the Carter Center in Atlanta, about which we all have warm feelings. Um, Reverend Hayward also conducted political asylum and refugee work with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and Advocates for Human Rights. She has studied Buddhism and in Nepal and is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. She's currently pursuing her doctorate in theology and religious studies at Georgetown University, 
focusing on Buddhism and Christian theological responses to authoritarianism and conflict in Burma, Myanmar. Um, and she will be discussing with us today the well, it was there a moment ago, uh, the, the book that is hot off the press. Can you kind of stand it up there? So, uh, thank you. I, I, I'm delighted to hold it up. It contains essays by uh, two past WSRP research associates, um, uh, which I was thrilled to learn. And we're so happy uh, to see this publication and to have you here to talk about it. So, Susan. Bear with me for a moment. Thank you for that warm introduction, Anne, and Dean Hempton, and Jeff, and Liz, and everybody who uh, included me in this colloquium this year and extended the invitation and helped get me here. I really appreciate being here, and it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces here and to be back home at HDS. It's been a few years now since I completed my studies here, but my feet have yet to touch the ground. My time at HDS was precious to me, not so much for the substance of what I learned, although I love delving into the musty, strange worlds of ancient texts and traditions, but for the way that HDS taught me to think and move in the world by adopting a moral critical lens and seeking to understand systems of domination and the disruptive divine work of liberation, by learning to appreciate the prophetic power of language and poetry and ritual, by promoting cross-cultural understanding in a globalized world through religious encounters, a distinctive approach that seeks to understand how others make moral choices on their own terms within their own deeply held frames of meaning, it's incredible what takes place within these walls. So I beg you to soak up your time here. I'm jealous of you guys. Once you get out there, it's really easy to become distracted by the mundane and the parochial, especially in Washington, DC, and to slip out of that posture of being a mystery of the student, that, a, a student of the mystery that beats at the heart of it all. So take advantage of your time here. So my job here, as I understand it, and as the marching orders were given to me, is threefold. One, because this is the first session of the year, I am to give you a little bit of my understanding of the religious peace building uh, field and how it's developed, which I'm gonna situate within the, the story of the experience of the development of the uh, religious programs at the US Institute of Peace, where I work. And then second, to offer a gender analysis of that field and to share some stories in particular of women religious leaders and the work that they've done on peace building, drawing from the study and from the book that was published. And then I'm to reflect on what Harvard and what this colloquium can offer in advancing of the field. So I'm gonna get to all of that, but I'm gonna start with a story. It's a story about a woman I know in Colombia and I work with, Adelina Zuniga. She's a Pentecostal woman who was displaced by the violence in, to Sincelejo, a city in the north of the country. She was victimized by violence that tore apart her community. Like many living in the midst of violent conflict, over time, she became drawn increasingly into her religious community 
to the rituals and to the practices and to the ways in which it was responding to the violence around her. And she was drawn into this for a number of reasons. She found in it spiritual solace, healing, and she found tangible social and economic support for her very precarious situation living in displacement. As she became more and more involved in her religious community, she began to take on more and more leadership responsibilities, eventually becoming head pastor of her local church. In this position, she was responsible for tending to the needs of her congregation, many of which were not small things. They were large and systemic issues. And so she began to team with other pastors and community activists in Cincelejo, eventually becoming a visible leader within her wider community, a community organizer, a peace builder, and an activist herself. In other words, Adelina's experience within her religious community led her to play an increasingly public and even political role in the community. It empowered her, it gave her leadership skills, community organizing and public speaking skills. It gave her confidence and a sense of responsibility and linkages to other religious and secular activists. And when you talk to Adelina about her experience, you'll find that she frames and justifies her role in the community entirely within her faith tradition. She'll say her empowerment as a woman came out of her faith convictions and that her gender equality is supported by scripture and tradition. And like the good Pentecostal pastor she is, she will quote chapter and verse to defend that. These days, Adelina has been working with the Ecumenical Network of Women Peace Builders, its acronym is HEMPAS, to support efforts at reconciliation and reintegration of former combatants in her community. And it's not easy. The combatants coming back, paramilitary, guerrilla, government soldier, They've created chaos and violence for many of those in her community. She knows the depth of the suffering that was wrought by those wielding arms because she's a survivor of that violence itself. And because as a pastor, she's had to address those wounds within her community, within her people. But she believes in resurrection, life out of death, love out of hate, peace out of violence, the possibility of beginning all over again, so she and the women of Hempas set about restoring relationships, facilitating the hardest conversations in the world between victims and victimizers, reaffirming humanity in a context where humanity, inhumanity has prevailed for decades, couching and fueling and enlivening her work with ritual and scripture and prayers of lament and hope and hard work. This is religion at work in the midst of violence. It's not the whole story, of course, it's Adelina's story. The whole story is even more complex of a Catholic church conservatively bent that supported state violence in the 50s, of liberation theology driving violent leftist guerrilla outfits, of prejudice between Catholics who are the vast majority of the population and Pentecostals many of whom have converted recently to the faith, especially in places that have been the hardest hit by violence. This prejudice expressed in the smashing of Catholic relics, spitting on Mary statues, or the marginalization of Protestant leaders from church-led involvement in formal peace processes with the government. To take any one of those stories and claim it as the story 
of religion and violence would be sloppy scholarship if you did it here. And if done in DC, it would fuel ineffective policymaking and peace practicing at best. But it's a story, Adelina's story, that I offer as prologue tonight. Because sometimes I think these issues of religion, violence, gender, peace are so complex that all we can do really is start by telling stories. Maybe the writers of the Bible and the Upanishads and the sutras were actually onto something there. So now first, just so you know where I'm coming from, I work at the US Institute of Peace in Washington, DC. It's an institution that was created in 1984 by an act of Congress. USIP has both religious roots and connections to Harvard Divinity School. It was created as a result of an advocacy campaign in the 1960s and 70s directed towards the US government. Those involved, many of them leaders in the Just Peace churches, Quakers and Mennonites, quite a few of them from the United Church of Christ, my own denomination, were lobbying the government for the creation of a National Peace Academy. They said to the USG this, look, we had all these great military academies around the country where we send our young adults and we provide them with a free college education, and meanwhile, we train them in the conduct and the strategy of warfare in exchange for their service in the US military. But they argued, the conduct and the strategy of nonviolent, non-military means of dealing with international conflict, whether it's negotiations or mediations or non-militarized peacekeeping, that takes just as much knowledge and skills training and it's just as vital to national and global security interests. So they asked, what if we created a peace academy where young American adults went to receive a free education, meanwhile learning the conduct and strategy of nonviolent, non-military ways to respond to international conflict, and then they serve the US government in the diplomatic corps? Jimmy Carter liked the idea, so he commissioned a group to look into it and they brought their recommendations to the Senate floor. The Congressional Act establishing the Institute was signed into law in 1984 by Ronald Reagan. It was a far cry from what the advocates had envisioned. Rather than an academy on par with West Point or the US Air Force Academy, it was instead a small little research center comprising an initial staff of three who operated out of a row house in DuPont Circle. According to the language of the Congressional Act, USIP was to be, here I quote, an independent nonprofit national institute to serve the people and the government through the widest possible range of education and training, basic applied research opportunities, and peace information services on the means to promote international peace and the resolution of conflicts among the nations and the peoples of the world without recourse to violence. It began something like a think tank funding and leading research projects that sought to understand the causes of conflict and the best strategies for addressing the root and ancillary drivers of violence, those efforts that are led by governments, international organizations, and by civil societies. It started small, but in time it grew. So in the mid-90s, a fellow by the name of Dr. David Little joined the staff, a religious studies scholar. He initiated a program looking at the role of exclusionary forms of religious nationalism in several conflict, conflict 
contexts, including Sri Lanka, Israel-Palestine, and the Sudans, that justified violations of human rights and discriminatory governance, which in turn drove civil strife and violence. Where his project concluded after several years was with recognition of the need to engage religious actors and factors in efforts to advance sustainable peace, particularly, but not exclusively, in places where religion was complicit in conflict. David left USIP at the end of the 90s. He was lured away by a faculty position at Harvard Divinity School, where he was able to continue to research and teach students like me on these issues of religion, human rights, nationalism, violence, and peace. His departure from USIP left a hole. The Institute at that time in the 90s had been one of the few organizations in DC that was looking at religious issues and their intersection with international relations and diplomatic policy in the 90s, although there were others, notably Douglas Johnston with International Center for Religion and Diplomacy, who worked closely with David in advocating for the State Department to understand and engage religion more deliberately in its work. So after David's departure, a small group was convened to determine whether the Institute should continue to focus on religion as a primary theme, especially given the other many thematic priorities worthy of exploration, for example, the role of media, the role of gender, the role of economics and peace building. The group concluded that given how glaring was the gap of religious understanding among DC policymakers and global practitioners interested in peace, and how critical it was that it would continue that it would establish the religion and peacemaking program to pick up where David Little had left off with his recommendation to advance efforts on the ground in conflict zones to engage and support religious actors, ideas, and institutions in peace building. So David Smock took on the leadership of the program when it was created in 2000. His early efforts advanced understanding of how various Abrahamic faiths have addressed issues of violence and peace throughout their histories and he did a mapping of various peace activities in which Islam, Christianity, various traditions within Christianity and Judaism are engaged. On the ground, David Smock supported efforts by faith-based actors and organizations working to advance peace, particularly through interreligious dialogue and collaboration. One of the early recipients of support from the program was Pastor James Wui and Imam Muhammad Ashafa in Nigeria. At the time, they were relatively unknown clergy in Nigeria who had left religious militia movements in order to work together to bridge Christian-Muslim divides. Now there's something of religious peace-building rock stars, and I see that they're gonna be speaking at your colloquium in December. So over time, the program has supported work in Sudan, Macedonia, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Indonesia, and Israel-Palestine, among other places. In addition to facilitating and supporting interreligious collaboration for peace, we offer capacity building to religious actors and, or and organizations so that they can better understand and so leverage their position and influence to transform religious and other drivers of violent conflict. The creation of peace education within religious frames to adopt as curricula in religious schools, whether those primary, secondary, or graduate level schools where the next generation of religious clergy go including in Muslim madrasas and Sharia colleges and in Buddhist universities. Our vision of the program is a world in which religious ideas, actors, and institutions do not drive prejudice nor violence, but rather play meaningful roles in building sustainable peace, reducing human suffering, and promoting coexistence across lines of difference. So I have just a few examples of some of our work 
in Sri Lanka, where we've helped support the development of a network of about 400 religious clergy across the island who are involved in peace building reconciliation work. Um, the original network was almost exclusively male clergy, but there has been the creation now of a parallel network of women religious, uh, Buddhist nuns, Catholic nuns, and so on, and, um, and a similar group that, in, that includes youth. And this program is primarily run, as all of our projects are, by local organizations who understand the religious context best and who are best placed to ensure that these programs are advanced in a sustainable way that can actually have an impact. Um, in Iraq, we worked with the Council of, Council of Representatives, which is the parliament in Baghdad, their Religious Affairs Committee, and the Kurdish Regional Government's Ministry of Religion, and with local civil society actors to develop programs and policies for engaging clergy in efforts to promote peace and religious freedom. In Israel-Palestine, this is a while ago now, um, we were involved in supporting the efforts of the Alexandria process, which was signed in, which led to the, the signing of the Alexandria Declaration in 2002 by religious leaders from across the Holy Land. And that was an effort that went parallel with the peace process there, bringing together the religious leaders to negotiate particularly over issues of religious dispute, for example, access to sacred space in order to find common ground. And in Colombia, as I mentioned earlier, we've been supporting the Ecumenical Women's Peacebuilding Network, which, is, which comprises Catholic uh, Mennonite and, and other Protestant denominations and Pentecostal women who are engaged in peacebuilding. So where do women fit in to this emerging field? This has been a pressing question that has been asked more increasingly and more fervently over the last several years because the religious peace-building field has faced accusations that it has marginalized women. Indeed, when one reviews the religious peace-building literature, one finds little mention of women or gender dynamics in or implications of religious peace-building. The exemplars lifted up are often male figures, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of them, bishops who've participated in formal peace processes or reconciliation processes like Bishop Balo in East Timor, Desmond Tutu in South Africa, for example, or Thich Nhat Hanh, Mahagosananda, and the Dalai Lama from the Buddhist tradition, from the Muslim faith, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, or more recently, Sheikh Abdallah Bambaya. It's often these senior clerics who are identified as the primary sources of leverage for transforming religious behavior and impacting peace at the local and national level. They're the ones with the power in the religious sector. In the practice of religious peace building, this assumption plays out. So when peace organizations or foreign governments seek to engage religious actors, they often go first to the male clerics, who end up comprising the most visible interfaith peace delegations throughout the world. So women appear invisible, at least at first glance, when looking at the religious peace building field. Now this is not a phenomenon that is particular to religious peace building. In much peace work of the past decades, women have taken a backseat to men. From 1992 to 2009, women constituted only 2.4% of the signatories to peace agreements. After all, those who get to the negotiating table are typically those who wield the guns, who are leaders of government, armed groups, and the security sector, arenas that have been primarily, though of course not exclusively, the purview of men. As a result of this marginalization of women, the United Nations passed, passed Security Resolution 1325 almost to the day 15 years ago. In recognition of this marginalization of women, 
and seeking to create greater gender balance in peacemaking by calling for increased efforts to ensure and strengthen women's participation. It also, in this resolution, affirmed that women suffer particular injustices and violence in war in ways that are different from men, and that these injustices have not historically been addressed in peace processes when women have not been included. So when the, the idea behind that being that when women have been included in peace processes, formal peace processes or informal ones, the agenda changes and it expands based on their experiences and their priorities that they bring to peace building. So returning to religious peace building, we can expect that the dominance of male actors means that issues affecting women, issues of priority to women, and crucial understandings of conflict and community needs that women have as a result of their experiences in wartime are not as likely to be addressed in normative peacebuilding theory and practice. Some fierce critics have argued that the religious peacebuilding field, they've gone so far as to say that the religious peacebuilding field has itself set back the cause of women's empowerment generally, given that it strengthens religious authority and voice in domestic and international policymaking, which inevitably in their mind marginalizes women. Certainly the field of religious peacebuilding deserves some of this criticism and must heed the call of 1325 to ensure its work includes women and their priorities more meaningfully. But the argument that women have not been involved at all in religious peacebuilding or that they lack crucial forms of a power and authority within religious traditions needed to advance peace also needs to be examined critically because it's not so easy. So time for another story. I began at USIP in 2007. I was, at the time, the first woman to work in the religion program at USIP. Upon arriving, my boss said to me, why don't you head down to Columbia to see if there's anything that we can be doing there to better support the work of the churches and peace building. So I went. My predecessor had led some initiatives in Columbia, bringing together senior leadership from the Catholic and the Protestant traditions to advocate for and to intervene so as to mobilize a peace process between the government and the two major guerrilla groups, the FARC and the ELN. The efforts began with ecumenical dialogue and relationship building, but they had ultimately stalled. When I arrived to Bogota, I met with those who had been involved. It was exclusively men who'd been involved in that process. And they didn't express a great deal of enthusiasm in reinvigorating the process, which had met many challenges. But while I was down there, I had separate meetings with the women, Catholic nuns, Mennonite women, the Pentecostal women preachers, and that's when I found a different story. They had been frustrated by the ecumenical peace efforts in the past that had been primarily led by the senior leadership in their face, always men, and had seemed not to incorporate their priorities and voices and commitments to advancing ecumenical relationships and to advancing them even when the conversations grew tense even when there were disagreements that arose about politics, tactics, or theology. In some places, these religious women were surging forward with these kinds of ecumenical peace efforts, even without any institutional or financial support. So as I was having these conversations with the women, the idea was born of developing the Ecumenical Women's Peacebuilding Network, comprising entirely women who are leaders in their churches and communities and who are doing extraordinary work for peace on the front lines of violence supporting victims, confronting armed actors in order to create zones of peace, facilitating those hard conversations about reconciliation, advocating for the national peace process, and then when the national peace process between the government and the FARC began, advocating for more women to be included in the, at the negotiating table, 
and advocating for the needs of victims and women to be taken into account in those negotiations, and so on. So let's return to Adelina, who's a member of this network. Her emergence as a community peace leader, as a direct result of her work within her faith, her faith tradition, may contradict the usual calculation about how women are empowered and the role religion plays in that. Recall that her religious tradition led her into this very active community leadership role within her community. It didn't keep her from it. But here's the thing, Adelina's not alone. In 2010, my colleague Catherine Marshall and I launched the initiative that was mentioned earlier, exploring the intersection of women, religion, and peace building. We found stories like this around the world in different regional contexts across every religious tradition. Not only were women saturating the front lines of religious peace building work in some of the most violent areas of conflict outside of the capitals, but they very much said that they were compelled to do so and that their work was shaped, their priorities were shaped by the teachings and experiences within their faith traditions. For the purposes of our study, Catherine and I defined women religious peace builders as, or women religious leaders, as those who have important and formative links to their religion as a source of inspiration and formation, or more practically, use religious resources as a central component in their peace work, or work through religious institutions. This includes Catholic and Buddhist nuns, female Quranic scholars and jurists, traditionally ordained or commissioned women religious leaders, women who lead religious ritual and worship for communities, and, but we also included women who head up faith-based organizations, social service arms of religious bodies, university scholars, or who work through other religious bodies to advance justice and peace. Often religious, female religious leaders were on the margins of the religious institutions, to be sure, and their authority was limited in crucial and critical ways, but they existed. And many of them were playing incredible roles as peace builders, important roles as peace builders. So many of you who have lived in, who come from, or who have worked in conflict zones will attest to the fact that women are incredibly active in religious communities. In fact, as, as my colleague Marianne Cusimano-Love, who wrote a chapter in the book, she'll often say, if you look at any of the social science polls that have been done, by no matter what standard you, you judge it, whether it's um, going to worship on a regular basis, whether it's um, appealing to particular religious beliefs that, that you hold, no matter which way you calculate it, women consistently come out as more religious than men, or as practicing religion more, f more uh, I don't want to say faithfully, but more uh, regularly <laughs> than, than men do. And that plays out in the religious peace building field too, that women are incredibly involved in religious peace building as a direct result of their um, active involvement within their communities of faith. But they were often very, and so they were often very involved in peace building activities such as human rights advocacy, reconciliation and trauma healing, particularly in their local communities. Moreover, many women who are involved in peace work through secular arenas, so through organizations that don't necessarily have explicit religious motivations or religious connections, um, would often begin to cite when pressed or asked about how their faith had driven their involvement in these kinds of activities or shaped their commitments to them, even if it wasn't directly expressed through their day-to-day -day work in those secular organizations. 
So in thinking about that, you can take as an example the two women who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011, Lema Gaboi or Tabako Karman who may have been, well, Lema Gaboi was working through a religious organization, um, but Tabako Karman from Yemen was working through a very explicit secular organization, Women Without Walls, a, a media advocacy group. And these are two women who have spoken quite openly in public spaces about the important role that religion played in compelling them to do their work and in supporting them and sustaining them throughout their work as they faced threats, as they faced resistance. Um, and as a tactic, especially for Lema Gaboi and how she went about creating coalitions and pressing for changes at the political level in order to advance the peace process. In our study in looking at what kinds of peace building efforts women religious leaders become involved in, we found several trends. The first was cross-boundary cross work. So time and again, we saw that women, and particularly women of faith, would seek to reach across religious, political, ethnic, or other divides in conflict zones to build bridges and wider movements. To some degree, it was their marginalization from the top echelons of institutional, uh, of religious institutions and of, of politics that may have played a role in facilitating this kind of cross-border relationship building and action, because it rendered them less constrained politically and freer to make moves that might be deemed socially or politically risky. For some, such as Israeli and Palestinian mothers or Christian and Muslim women in Liberia, the desire to reach across divides came as a result of their shared experiences as victims of the, of the violent conflict who are fed up with the suffering imposed on their families and communities by continued violence. Oftentimes, their goals in bridging these divides, though, were as much about strategy as it was about relationship building for relationship building's sake. As a group of, of women who had less political influence, particularly in an environment, in a very militarized, violent environment in which those wielding the guns are those who have voice, larger coalitions were necessary in order to exert influence, in order to push people towards the peace process. And that required the creation of coalitions across divides in order to build those larger coalitions. And so that leads us into the, the second trend of religious peace-building activities that, that women advance, which has been advocacy. Women of faith seek to influence political decision-making, and because they are usually excluded from direct participation in it, advocacy becomes their primary means of doing so. They often advocate on behalf of the community, youth and women, those suffering the brunt of war. Sometimes this advocacy keeps women's rights central, but not always. So again, consider here uh, Lema Gaboi or Talako Karman, who led resistance movements, marches, marches sit-ins, other forms of civil disobedience to end war dictatorship. Or in Colombia, where Catholic nuns in Hempas advocate against corporate powers that profit from operating in the chaos of war. So women, and women of faith in particular, often seek to draw various groups, particularly disempowered or minority groups, together in order to front an effective resistance to powers propelling violence. The third trend we found was a particular gravitation towards psychosocial and, and spiritual support to victims or survivors. Women of faith seem particularly drawn to providing this kind of care to victims in, in conflict zones, particularly male and female victims of sexual violence and war who may not feel comfortable going to men and male clergy for support and to child soldiers seeking to reintegrate into communities. One example of how this issue of primary concern to re religious 
women peace builders can influence the institutional agendas when they are in positions of decision making is Sister Marie Ber Bernard de Lima. She was the first woman general secretary of the Catholic Church in the DRC's Episcopal Commission for Justice and Peace. And in that position, because she prioritized especially the, the role of uh, sexual, -based gen sexual and gender-based violence as it was being used in the conflict in DRC and was concerned about it, she pushed for that to be taken more seriously by the Catholic hierarchy and the Catholic Church, um, both seeking to develop programs institutionally within the Catholic Church to provide support to survivors of this form of violence and pushing the Catholic Church and the DRC to become much more involved in advocacy at the institutional legal level to ensure that um, there was not impunity for those who'd been involved in it and inflicting it. An accusation I often hear from many in the women's peacebuilding sector is that religious institutions have not done enough to combat violence against women, including rape and sexual slavery and warfare human trafficking and domestic violence that often spikes when war ends and soldiers come home. Certainly, however, women of faith have sought to push this issue more to the center of religion and justice building priorities. And then a fourth one that's not quite as common as the others, but still um, was seen in several of the case studies that we looked at was women religious leaders playing roles as mediators or interveners in the midst of violent conflict. Oftentimes, when they are able to take on this role, they take advantage of the fact that they're not seen as a threat by anyone. The Catholic nun or the Buddhist nun or uh, the, the Muslim Malavia, the, the Muslim imama in Sri Lanka is not gonna be seen in her local community as a particular threat to the armed actors. And so they take advantage of that non-threatening role that they have to be able to, to go directly to some of those armed actors in order to negotiate particularly on behalf of the local communities. So in Colombia, as I mentioned earlier, this takes the form of Catholic nuns and um, Protestant women leaders going to negotiate with the, the guerrillas, the paramilitary, the other, the government soldiers, in order to create zones of peace for local communities where no armed actors are allowed to go. This also um, takes place in northern Uganda quite a bit. Women of faith are also heavily involved in activities that might traditionally be ascribed to the development sector, but which play a role in the, the larger, broader venue of religious peace building or strategic peace building. And that can include education, public health, or humanitarian relief. So despite all this great work that women religious leaders are involved in, their work still remains invisible often. And this has obvious, very real implications for their work. They have a hard time receiving the necessary funding, engagement, training, and resources. But I have to admit that a lot of the women who we interviewed or who were involved in this initiative with us, they also said that they take advantage of this invisibility and, and even the marginalization in interesting ways. So they would say that their invisibility is a useful thing. The fact that nobody sees what they're doing, nobody knows what they're doing, that nobody sees the ways in which they're pushing the envelopes politically in their local communities and even within their religious traditions pushing the envelopes allows them to get away with a lot more. And to do this work without gatekeepers trying to prevent them to do it and to do this work safely for them and for the, the local community advocates in which they work for. So they, they noted this form of strategic invisibility that has been um, 
a boost to their ability to get this work done, while at the same time acknowledging that this invisibility has created significant challenges for them. Because when they're not seen, then they're not given support by the international actors who are coming in and trying to, to find those who are doing some of the most critical work in religious peace building and support them. Women who choose to advance their peace efforts through religious institutions will acknowledge that it's not always easy. Many inevitably run up against religious law, authorities, or teachings that constrain their work. In other words, patriarchal roadblocks within their traditions. And in response to this, women of faith peace builders across various religious traditions frequently draw from theological and textual sources within their tradition to defend their agency to others, and so to empower themselves, as we saw Adelina do in Colombia. So that's to say that, you know, we often talk in the religious peace building field about the fact that religions are, are plural, that they have multiple teachings that can be used to drive exclusionary policies, to drive violence, um, but at the same time there exist within the traditions multiple teachings that can be drawn on in order to support peace building, in order to support reconciliation, in order to support embrace of other religious traditions. So in the same way that religious I'm sorry, of other communities. So in the same way that religious traditions are plural when it comes to teachings of violence and peace, they're also plural when it comes to teachings with regard to gender and with regard to women. Just as there are teachings that are, um, can be used to oppress women, to argue against their participation in leadership roles in social communities, in the political process, and so on, so too are there teachings within the religious traditions that support their empowerment, that support their role within the community as leaders in the midst of violence to support communities, to support the victims of it. And what these women will often say that in the midst of violence, which causes so much social disruption in the community, there's something of a silver lining for them because that also creates an opportunity for them to be empowered, to step into roles that traditionally men would play, but they're not around because they're um, off fighting in the wars, and so they have to step into these roles as leaders within their communities, as Adelina did in Colombia. But it also creates opportunities at the same time for pushing some of these norms within the religious traditions that have been used in the past to obstruct their, their roles, obstruct their leadership. And it creates, through the dis disruption, this ability for them to draw from the text those teachings, those rituals, those practices that empower them and that defend their role in peace building. So there's this way in which the violence and the disruption within the community creates these opportunities for reinterpreting their traditions, reinterpreting their roles within the communities in new ways. I want to draw another story from Colombia, if you'll allow me. I was in a workshop with a network a couple years back, and they repeatedly made reference to women in the Bible to stories where women had served as either leaders in their communities, including Esther and Vashti, who, are who stood up to men's violence, or early Christian women leaders like Priscilla, or women who are victims of men's violence in war. Consider the many women who have been victims of rape in the Bible. Their efforts to uncover or highlight religious support for their active participation and to understand how particular historical interpretation, often driven by men, has resulted in masking these religious traditions that have affirmed women, was used to inspire them as individuals, to challenge gender oppressive religious claims that would limit their work, and to provide theological grounding to their effort to transform structural gender equalities 
both within and outside religious institutions. And it also affirmed their experience as women living in the midst of violence and facing so much uh, sexual violence in particular within their communities. I should note that these references that they were making, these stories that they were drawing from within their biblical traditions, were used not just to, to challenge gender oppressive voices within their religious traditions, but also to defend their faith against secular actors or those from other traditions who would dismiss their religion as inherently anti-women. So I've thrown a lot out here, but I wanna bring it back to all of you and how this might apply, especially as you set out this year on the colloquium looking at religion and the practice of peace. So first, obviously, I urge you to bring a gender analysis to your research and to your reading. The voices of religious women peace builders are there, they're everywhere, I assure you. But you might have to dig a little harder and you might have to tilt your ear a little more in order to hear them. Further, please, I beg of you, document the work of women religious peace builders. Our book is just a start. There's a few case studies in there, but there are so many more case studies that need to be written about how women religious leaders have operated in zones of conflict, how they've done it successfully, the challenges that they've faced, and so on. And there's other religious traditions that are not included in this book that need to be captured as well. This is needed to enrich the religious peacebuilding field, and it's needed to enrich the women's peacebuilding field, which itself has not always understood or took seriously the role of religion in propelling women's work for peace. As you move into designing and leading religious peacebuilding efforts, of course, ensure that women are centrally involved and not just invited into a process that has already been designed and the agenda set by others, by clerical authorities, but involve women in the shaping of the agenda itself. Now, it's gonna be a challenge to do that in some environments where women are not recognized as traditional religious authorities. You may run up against resistance or just have a hard time identifying appropriate women to serve those roles. You'll have to approach efforts to ensure women's participation with compassion, commitment, and sensitivity to local dynamics, but it's important to make this extra effort not just through creating additional separate initiatives for women to engage one another, which has sometimes merely served to ghettoize women's religious peacebuilding, but through including women in the primary normative acts of religious peacebuilding. Now, stepping back more generally to religious peacebuilding field itself, what I think is the greatest promise of this colloquium is exactly what Dean Hempton was talking about in his introduction. It's its interdisciplinary cross-school nature. For too long, those studying, advocating, or practicing religious peacebuilding have operated in a silo. It's made this work less effective. What is crucial to understand is how engagement with religious actors, ideas, and institutions can fit into the larger efforts by the international community and by local communities to build peace. The religious scholars or students in this colloquium may not understand well enough international laws and systems and the order, that's okay. That's not your expertise. But you Kennedy and Fletcher students sure do, even if you're lacking comfort with the complexities of particular, of particular religious traditions. The complexity of violent conflict these days, these days when we are a far cry from the good old days when war was a military exercise that was, that was fought between two governments following general rules of military conduct, war is no longer like that. And it requires us to break down our silos and work across sectors, disciplines, and expertise to find new solutions. Believe me, the world and DC needs these 
multidisciplinary cross-school solutions desperately were floundering in DC to understand how to address the complexities of violence in the world today. So I'm gonna end there so that we can begin our discussion. Um, but before we do so, I just wanna thank you again for inviting me here to speak with you. Thank you so much, Susan, for um, giving us such a rich basis for a discussion. Um, I'm going to invite the first of our, our student discussants um, to come up and introduce the questions. This Thank is Katie Blaisdell. That was my job. Thank you, Reverend Hayward, for your words and for engaging us so richly in thinking about women of faith as peace builders. I am Katie Blaisdell, and I am a fourth-year graduate degree student in divinity and public administration here at HDS and at the Kennedy School, or following your criteria, an aspiring woman religious peace builder. And tonight, two of my colleagues from the working group and I will be starting off our question and answer session for the evening. Your thoughts and the perspectives that you shared with us in the readings you assigned stimulated great thinking among us, especially about the language that we use for women's role in peacemaking without essentializing women, and the tension between egalitarian or feminist models of women's empowerment and traditional complementarian ones. So Amy Bassett and Aileen Fitzke will each ask a question that they developed out of those conversations that we had together in our imperfect but earnest effort to reflect the sense of our community of scholars. I think HDS could often be described as imperfect but earnest. And then faculty and other students from the working group will have a chance to ask some questions before we open up the discussion to members of the public who will be here tonight. Uh, though you answered pretty much my question that I was going to ask. Oh, I'm Aileen Fitzke from the Graduate Student Working Group. And though you answered much of the question that I was going to ask about just the, um, the nature of con the change in the nature of conflict from, um, from battlefields to urban, um, urban uh, areas where the casualties of war are vast are, are now more civilian populations than they have been in the past and that the vast majority of victims of war are women and their children and so I wanted to ask you about which you covered mostly was um, the role of women peace builders um, for areas that are particular to women because during po during conflict situations um, now that women are, are in a midst of conflict they face um, you know, violent situations that they didn't face when the battlefields were farther away. And also, post-conflict, women are part of what happens when um, violent, uh, or, um, you know, combatants come back and the violence that's um, inflicted upon them as the result of um, post-conflict um, violence. And I just wanted to ask you to, to just speak to the role of women in general and religious women peace builders uh, in particular that addresses the role specifically of women's issues um, post and um, during conflict and post-conflict. Okay. Thank you for your question. Um, you know, if you step back and you look at the development of the peace building fields at large, 
As I mentioned towards the end of my remarks, war used to be relatively easy in terms of how it was waged. It was an act that was fought between one or, or two or more um, governments who declared war on each other. They had military exercise. Um, they generally, over time, followed rules according to the Geneva Conventions and so on about how that war was going to be conducted. And when they were concluded, it was done through a negotiation process between the leader of those militaries. So it was fairly contained, but modern war looks a whole lot different. It's exercised in very different ways. It's, it's no longer something that's fought between rarely between two governments and two militaries. Now we have a lot of non-state actors who are involved. And the battlefield has changed quite a bit, as you mentioned. So it's no longer war is waged in particular areas that are set aside for, for war making. Now it's taking place within communities. Now it's involving, it's not just between governments, now it's between um, not only non-state actors in the form of insurgency groups or terrorist groups or extremist groups or so on, but it also involves corporations um, that are profiting from the context of war. It, um, it involves various forms of, of economic activities that are profiting from war that are beyond corporations, that are forms of black market and so on, that, that benefit drug trafficking and so on, that benefits from the context of war and that fuels war in itself. And so the result of this, this um, seeping of war into local communities and extending outside the acts of states has made it much more difficult to determine how to resolve it and to create to resolve it in ways that are sustainable especially in a place where war has been going on for a long time and so economic social political all sorts of systems have evolved in order to ensure that the war is sustained the conflict is sustained and that's why the act of or the field of conflict resolution and peace building has changed quite dramatically. So, you know, back in um, the 60s and 70s when they were advocating for the creation of the Institute, and even when the Institute was first created, the kinds of work that it was looking at for peacemaking was really looking at purely negotiations. How do we, in, how, how do we develop a negotiation process? What kinds of issues need to be discussed? But increasingly as war became more, more, uh, complex and as we began to realize that negotiations were just one small piece of what it means to create sustainable peace that led to the development of the, the, the more complex field of conflict resolution which has expanded to include the role of non-state actors and the role of civil society, the role of religion and religious actors in fueling peace building, the work on the ground um, and so I think it's particularly women's um, this is where women come in, right? Because negotiations in the, process, in, in the past, as I mentioned, were primarily being conducted by those who, who waged the, the wars, which were primarily political and military leaders who were men. But as war has been, more, has been made more complicated, and as we've come to understand um, how peace requires more than negotiations, that's brought in the experiences of women, and that's brought in and begun to recognize um, the role that women play within their local communities. So that, that's been a good thing for the peacebuilding field. That's created the space for it. That, that's where you have this sort of parallel story of both women's peacebuilding and religious peacebuilding, marginalized in the past, now more involved in it as a result of the reality of the changing nature of war in part and, and the changing nature of what's required in order to create peace. But then there's still this question of um, 
how do we address in particular the, the experiences and the particular forms of violence that women face in the midst of war and ensure those are taken seriously, especially at the, the track one or the formal process of, of peacemaking and negotiations. And in negotiations that are really about creating the environment that's going to exist post-war and the state structures and the policies. And if you don't have women included and women's perspectives included in those conversations, then you're not gonna create structures that ensure that, for example, as, as you mentioned, when war ends, that's when domestic violence goes up. That's when irregular forms of violence that, that tend to in, uh, harm women more go up. So, so that's why there's been this push in 1325 um, and other resolutions and other, other efforts to ensure that women are included in some of those processes, both at the formal level as well as building on and linking some of the efforts of women at the local level and what's taking place at the national level. I hope that answers it in part. Thank you. My name is Amy Bassett. I'm also one of the students here in the colloquium, so we're really glad to have you. Um, in the few conversations we've had with um, my classmates, we're really concerned about doing something that actually is worthwhile and effective. And, um, and, and I think that goes a lot into peace building, that it's something that's sustainable and actually has a long-term effect. Yeah. And so one of our big concerns is families. And we've focused a lot of wars in the past on men. And we're now focusing on women, and that's good. Um, but we also need to focus on children, because they're also the victims of war. So what specific things, when post-war, um, when resolutions are making, when negotiations are happening, when, these, when we're doing peace building, what specific things can we do to strengthen families? Because if we don't strengthen families today, then it doesn't do us a lot of good to do peace today, because mm -hmm. we need families tomorrow as well. There has been, in this, in this sort of expansion of the field of peace building and taking into account the different experiences and needs of different constituencies, there has been a growth in youth peace building and in children's peace building as well. So I encourage you to look at that. This is also another um, place I would say that religious peace building hasn't always fully understood the role of young religious leaders and actors and how to support them in these efforts that have primarily, again, kind of gravitated towards older male clerics and their efforts. Um, and so I think some of the most, some of the focus of the, the children and youth efforts have been about um, ensuring that there are still opportunities for young people to advance and to advance towards human flourishing, even in the midst of violence. And so ensuring that there's still educational opportunities for them, ensuring the security, ensuring if their families are killed, if their parents are killed, that they have communities that can take them in. Um, and that if you don't do that, you potentially won't have sustainable peace because it's, it's, you're creating a new generation of victimized populations who have incredible grievances. And so there's a lot of attention these days to how to ensure that, that children and youth who are growing up in the midst of violent situations still have the kinds of opportunities and are still given the resilience and the hope and the opportunities that they need so that they don't get pulled into the cycles of violence or join um, violent movements because they think that's the only recourse um, to have dignity to have a job to address issues of injustice that they've faced within you know their lifetime with the losses that they've experienced um, and so I encourage you to kind of look look at some of those efforts but also as I was saying towards the end 
what we need to consistently be doing is even as we look to these particular communities and needs, whether youth or women or religious actors, that we're not addressing them as silos, that we're really looking at how they can be intersecting and mutually reinforcing to, to one another. I'm Trelawney. I'm, I'm not a student. I don't know what we call ourselves when we're in the RPP and we're not students. <laughs> um, I really appreciated uh, all of the nuance and the complexity of your talk. Yes, you threw a lot at us, but it was incredible in uh, not being simplistic, and so thank you. Um, I enjoyed your discussion of how women are involved in sort of alternate forms of geopolitics and uh, kind of taking ownership of their own security and alternate forms of governance, you know, organizing their own and sort of managing their own communities. And especially in terms of their own sorts of power that they have, where they fly under the radar and they're not taken seriously because they don't seem to have the kinds of power that other actors have, but that can be an asset. And my question is, in, is there any way that you've found to measure their effectiveness, either at, at various stages or types of peace building, in terms of the impact that they can have on systems that have very specific kinds of power structures still dominating, yeah. and they have different kinds of power? And so whether it's at conflict prevention, or moving to a peace agreement, or implementation, or sustainability, or building right moments for peace, I mean, how can we say, you know, People, there are going to be people who say, well, this just doesn't really matter. That's all well and good. But it's, it's the big men with their sticks and carrots that are really the important people in, in making peace. And, you know, I don't believe that, and I don't think you believe that. I want to know how, how you try to argue for that. Yeah. Well, this is the million-dollar question in the peace-building field generally, is how do we evaluate the impact of the efforts that we're doing? And it's especially difficult when it's grassroots activities. And it's especially difficult when it's the kind of activities that religious peace-builders tend to do, which are much more focused on attitudinal changes of um, creating multi-religious contexts of respect and coexistence and so on. How do you link a particular dialogue or a multi-religious dialogue or a particular initiative <laughs> with actual structural changes within the society that can fuel peace. And it's very difficult to make the, the causal connections between those things and to link them because you know, we all know that there's multiple drivers that play into our personal experiences and the choices that we make, much less our societies and the structures. Um, there have been increasing efforts, though, to try to make more sophisticated um, evaluation of the impact of religious peace building, women's peace building. And um, I'm part of actually a multi-religious initiative, or a, a multi-year initiative that was just established uh, a year ago that is being led by the Alliance of Peace Building that is called the Interreligious Peace Building, of, or Evaluation of Interreligious Peace Building Project. And so it's looking across the globe at different contexts, at different kinds of projects of inter and intra-religious dialogue and peace building activities to try to, cap to try to answer that very question. What's working and what's not? What has unintended consequences when we bring together for multi-religious dialogue and it actually ends up reaffirming certain power dynamics, especially between majority and minority communities or between men and women? Um, 
And what are the effective strategies? What is the sequencing of intra-religious or inter-religious? And so that's being done in the religious peacebuilding field. It's being done simultaneously within the women's peacebuilding field in order to understand. And I think it's making more sophisticated our strategies. Um, even if it's imperfect, it's never going to be able to make all of those causal connections for us entirely. But it has, it has pushed and strengthened and helped us understand where strategies have not been effective, even if you know, they were implemented with all goodwill. Um, I, I do believe, as you, as you alluded to, in the power of, of subversion. And I see ways in which um, religious peace builders, male and female, are, or, are able to create change within their communities that have influence on legal norms, on political norms, on the actual structures of the state and of the societies. So I see it, <laughs> I believe in it, which is why I stay in this field. And, um, and I think we're doing a better job of linking, of, of making those connections. Of course, it's easy to point to somebody like Alema Gaboi and to say her efforts at advocacy did help end civil war, did push the, the primarily men who were at the negotiating table to, to actually get to a negotiated agreement because the rest of the communities were fed up with violence. Those are easy to track, the impact. It's a lot harder with some of these, um, these other kinds of activities that are taking place. But we're working on it. Hi, I'm Marissa Eggerstrom. I'm in the um, working group. Um, my question has to do with some of the framing here. I'm brand new to the field of religious peace building. Um, but as I read the pieces that you assigned and, and, and listening to you talk, uh, I'm quite familiar with the activities of women whose stories you tell. And it took until I was listening now to recognize, oh, we here domestically call that by other names. I mean, I know that name by the name, you know, community organizing. And in fact, I did not you know, recognize the fact that I've, I've worked for a religious institution that addresses multiple forms of violence you know, in, in conflict-ridden areas of Boston. Um, but we don't call that religious peace building. We, we call it other things. And so I'm wondering, given the tremendous power that the word religion has, particularly when it comes into play in um, state agencies or you know a federally funded organization like yours um, and certainly in terms of our foreign policy and interventions abroad I'm wondering if there if you think about if there is is part of this discussion in peace building um, some critical interrogation of uh, the concept of religion as a category um, in an effort to avoid the kind of essentialism that we also say is so important when dealing with issues of gender. Which is to say, I'm wondering, for instance, um, with some of the women you've profiled tonight, are they understood in their own context as, quote, religious women? Or are they simply women or leaders? My concern is, does the religious part show up to certain kinds of observers, especially 
Western, enormously privileged, educated, you know, in a culture that considers itself secular and is so often not, um, in ways that may be obscuring or exoticizing or, in other words, doing other forms of essentializing. And I'm wondering if that comes into your discussions and particularly in your Washington DC conversations. Yeah, there, there's not the, the kind of discussions that you have, like the Masuzawa discussions of is religion right. a false category that has been created in a post-colonial context and enforced on traditions that, that didn't see themselves as religious distinct from state institutions and political institutions and so on. But there is always a lively discussion of what constitutes religious engagement. What, what does that mean? Who are you engaging with? Um, what kinds of institutions, what kinds of actors um, fit within this category of religious engagement and diplomacy and so on? Um, and there's always the, the, conver the, the question asked of, are we including within that, does that mean marginalizing people who don't associate with any religious tradition um, or marginalizing forms of spirituality that we don't necessarily identify immediately as um, the religious traditions we're familiar with that are might, maybe more scripture-based or so on. There's this question a lot in Colombia with the indigenous shamanic traditions and how to engage them. And, and actually the Women's Ecumenical Network has engaged in that question quite a lot in talking about whether they're going to reach out to some of the shaman women leaders from the indigenous communities to include them in their efforts in reconciliation. <coughs> and so there are these healthy discussions that happens in terms of the categories and ensuring that our categories are, that are used are helpful in terms of helping us to develop our strategies and knowing kind of what are the boundaries of where we're gonna focus our activities and who we're going to engage, but also recognizing the limits of categories and what that means in terms of exclusion. Does that answer it in part? There was a lot there and we can talk about some of the other aspects of your questions as well. And I just want to say, I notice a lot of the students have been bringing up this question of essentializing women, which was in the, in the readings, but I didn't get to talk about it a lot in my comments. And so I just want to say a note about that. Um, in, in the readings, there was this caution that was made that oftentimes when we're talking about the role that women play in peace building, we essentialize them as somehow more capable of the kinds of um, soft forms of activities that constitute peace building, so more oriented towards building relationships, more nurturing. Um, and this comes out of the, the stereotypes of women um, because of their social roles as mothers or sisters or so on. And we always need to be careful when we're talking about the role of women in peace building, um, and whether religious or secular, that we're not essentializing them or attributing these kinds of roles that they might play with their society is something that's intrinsically a part of them. So it's always just that caution that even as we talk about the roles that they're playing, that we're not putting them into categories, especially in this case, in ways that might say that they're more suited to this kind of soft peace building that takes place at the community level rather than hardball negotiations in the political level, because then that's just gonna fuel their continued marginalization from, from peace negotiations. And at the same time, it's recognizing that, of course, women aren't only peace builders, that women have been at some of the front lines of some of the most vociferous um, forms of nationalism and exclusion. Um, I have some stories I could tell you from Myanmar where I went and I met with 
um, a group of about 20 Buddhist monks, followed by a group of about 40 Buddhist nuns. Um, and I would say that the Buddhist nuns were, were more extreme in some of their anti-Muslim rhetoric and some of their um, Myanmar Buddhist nationalist concerns that they were raising than, than the monks that I'd been involved in. And there's plenty of stories of, of you know, women really fostering cults of martyrdom and so on. So we never want to oversimplify um, any of these categories, any of the people who constitute those religious, um, those as peace builders in any way that would trap them in, in a particular form of activity. Can I ask one follow-up? Sure. How successful do you feel you are in conveying that level of complexity to your average Washington policy wonk, lawmaker, diplomat? See, this is the biggest challenge that I see in DC, is that it's very difficult for the policy world and the academic world to talk to each other, right? Because um, this, this is the frustration that the scholars have, right? Is that the policymakers are thinking in too simple a way and trying to make decisions. And any decision that they make is never gonna be perfect because it's always going to exclude one group or it's not gonna take account of you know, the full complexity of the situation or whatever it is. But um, I can tell you that the policymakers also have their own frustrations and their conversations with the scholarly community because oftentimes they're left at the end of the day saying, look, at the end of the day, I have to make a decision. I have, to, I have to categorize groups in some way in order to know how to navigate within them and make decisions about who we're gonna give development support to and how that development support is gonna be given and so on. And so as much as I appreciate complexifying, problematizing um, the situation and taking that into account and how I make the decisions, I also have to be told by, to, to have guidance given from academics in a way that helps me decide in a very fast-paced environment where decisions have to be made, and hard decisions have to be made daily, how to make those decisions. And so I, sometimes I see part of what I do because I kind of bridge these worlds of scholarly and, and practitioner, and you know, Sean Casey, another HDS alum who runs the Religion of Global Affairs Office, um, does the same thing as trying to bridge these conversations to teach um, academics how to be able to speak to policymakers and give them the kind of guidance that will be useful to them and to help policymakers know how to ask questions and, and push scholars in a way that will will help them get the answers that they need in order to make informed decisions so so how do the policymakers respond when I complexify things a little bit I mean they're, they're generally open to it as long as at the end of the day I'm, I'm helping them get to the answers that they need the decisions that they they need to make We're going to open up the conversation now to um, uh, the entire audience. We hope the working group will conti continue to contribute questions, but um, we'd like to include everyone who's here as well. Thank you, Reverend Howard, for your uh, presentation. I'm Septemi. I'm with the WSRP. I'm from Indonesia. <coughs> um, as you're talking and sharing your story, my first question came to my mind was whether there was an issue of religious conversion. Conversion? Yes. <coughs> Every time you're, <coughs> sorry, you're working together, 
with the women religious leaders. Because coming from Indonesia <clears throat> as a minority, double minority I could say, being woman and being Christian, living in the world's largest Muslim population, the issue would be there. So for many women that I've been working with and many religious communities, peace has become a most, the most dangerous practice, if you put it and position it within religious communities. And especially in a context like Indonesia, where public space has been shaped by religions, majority and minority. I'm not quite sure about the public space here in the US. So when you would like to bring your religious text symbols and narratives into the public space, that very space has become a contested space. And as being a woman, coming from a minority religion, it has become a double challenge. Mm -hmm. For me to, to really reflect, I'm a minister also, mm -hmm. and one of the most effective platform for me has been the pulpit. So from within Christian circles, the question has become, how can you practice peace by being truth true to who you are, but at the same time you have to, to be able to negotiate using language that can be understood within the public space. That has become a contested space among religions. And when you witness to stories both from both women groups, Muslims and Christians, for them there is no more hope than peace, but it has become the most dangerous practice for them. So how, how, how do you relate with that? For you as a woman minister coming from the most powerful nation in the world, bringing those different kinds of strategies and myself being in the US right now, my question, my second one would be, do you, how do you relate all the strategies that you apply or you have been embedded in various contexts outside the US how do you relate that with strategies with local communities, interreligious communities here in the US? Thank you. Okay. The first question is a hard one, and it had, I heard several layers to it, um, but it immediately made me think of Sri Lanka. Because when I have gone there as a, uh, as a white Christian, minister, there are clear, there's clear baggage that comes with that in any of my conversations. First of all, it's a post-colonial context, and so there's a lot of sensitivity about foreign intervention and about Western agendas, and you'll often hear the, the phrase neocolonialism being used um, to criticize development and peace agendas and activities that are being advanced by USIP or USAID or, or other Western organizations. They'll say, now that you can't, you can't do overt colonialism, it's become subverted, and you're still trying to advance particular political values, particular political systems and practices, and to influence our state systems and our cultures through supporting various kinds of development projects, through supporting peace building, through supporting women's empowerment, and this kind of thing. Um, and so that, that fear and anxiety and accusation and suspicion is 
often present when, when I'm coming in, as an, especially as an American, um, into that context. Coupled on that, then, is the, um, the trauma that, has, that exists because of the practices of Christian missionizing in the past and, and how that was done and the ways that local religious traditions were demonized in the process of Christian missionizing often, particularly in Sri Lanka, where there was very vociferous debates between Christian missionaries and Buddhist monks. Um, and so it was a very, very heated, contested space during the colonial era, religious space and religious debate. And then at the same time, they see taking place right now a number of efforts by particularly Korean and American Christian groups to go in and to proselytize, particularly within communities that have experienced a lot of violence or that are poor communities. Um, and there has been a practice by some there to link link development efforts or humanitarian relief efforts or support this happened especially in the aftermath of the tsunami um, with enticement towards conversion into the Christian faith. And, and that has created a lot of resentment and anxieties and has fueled this perception that any Western actor, any Christian actor who comes in who's interested in peace building or who's interested in development, who's interested in human rights is um, has a hidden agenda of some sort to, to influence, to ridicule, to disempower local traditions and local communities. And so I have to be constantly aware of that when I'm coming in. And there's, there's nothing I can do to undo the historical violence <laughs> and the practices that are ongoing by, um, by some Christian groups and by some other groups within that context that have harmed local communities and um, that have especially been critical to, to Buddhism and that tradition. I, I can't undo that. I just have to recognize that reality. And some of what I see myself doing is, if anything, serving as something of an ambassador or a diplomat to be able to, with those local communities, recognize those forms of violences historical that have taken place by Westerners by Christians recognize those ongoing forms of violence that have taken place, acknowledge it, um, talk about what within my religious tradition, what kinds of ideas, what kinds of practices have fueled that kind of violence and prejudice, and to do that as a way to hopefully not just build trust and not just sort of lay out on the table what my hopes are and what I'm seeking to do there, but also to um, offer self-criticism as, as a way of opening up a conversation that, that hopefully invites all of those who are a part of it to, to be authentic and to be self-critical, not just of others and others' traditions. Um, although I, I, I welcome that from them. I welcome the criticism of Christianity and Christian practices in Sri Lanka, um, but also to, to to help ensure that there is self-reflection and self-criticism within all of the religious communities that will also allow them to see the multiple forms of violence within their own communities that have um, prevented the religious traditions and the members within those religious traditions from working together. So that's just personally how I have addressed it within Sri Lanka. I have also sought, as much as I am able as a Christian minister, to speak honestly with the Christian communities there, the Sri Lankan Christian communities who sometimes after they've um, 
converted to the faith have themselves mimicked some of these practices of aggressive proselytizing and criticism of other religious traditions. So to speak critically and openly with them and to challenge some of their um, arguments that are made that, that legitimate these forms of, of proselytizing um, and to bring that back to the US to um, share the experiences, the, the, the ways in which that, that kind, those kinds of activities have fostered violence within the local communities. So that's how I've sought to do it in, in that context at least. Well, can you remind me, what was your second question? I'm sorry. The second one is really related. How do you relate the things that you got from outside the US into the local uh, interreligious communities here? Yeah. Um, I love doing that. <laughs> so I have, I've been involved in a number of initiatives in the domestic context that have um, sought to mobilize religious, multi-religious support for marriage equality, that have sought to address Islamophobia within the US, um, and then more recently, being involved in some of the Black Lives Matter, um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, with members of the Christian faith and from other faiths. And I see myself consciously drawing from the lessons that I've learned from religious peace builders who are working across the world in different contexts, but who are addressing very similar issues of marginalization of different groups, of forms of structural and overt violence that's being inflicted by different groups, of various forms of ideology and theology that have been used to fuel um, hatred or the, the dehumanization of different groups within their own context. I take those lessons that I've learned from them and apply it to how I do that kind of work in the US, especially when it came, comes to the kinds of authentic conversations that a lot of the really talented religious peace builders from whom I've learned around the world have been able to create within their own communities, how they've been able to draw on religious language and religious ritual um, in order to mobilize and enliven some of those activities um, and, and um, in the actual organization that's taking place at, at a community level. So that's how I've tried to take some of the strategies that I've learned from religious peace builders and other contexts to bring it here into my efforts as, as, um, as a peace builder in the US. And I actually, you know, I'm on Facebook and, and I try as much as possible to also um, be in conversation with, to link some of these activities that are taking place within the US to some of the activities that, you know, some of my like Buddhist monk friends from Myanmar on Facebook are doing within their local context so they can see that, one, we have forms of violence and oppression um, within the US. We have forms of religious violence. They oftentimes feel that, that Americans come over there and they say, we got it all sorted out over here and you guys are messed up here so we're here to like save the day and tell you how, to, how it's done. Um, but through, through online social media, I have found ways to be able to demonstrate to them how we're facing similar challenges here and some of the strategies that have been effective in, in addressing it here, some of, the some of the strategies that have been ineffective in trying to address some of those challenges here, and to link that with what they're doing within their communities to try to create more of this sort of global network of religious leaders who are involved in these kinds of initiatives. Thanks for your questions. Hi, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us today. Um, understanding that ideas of 
sort of like transgender or gender nonconformity are really situated in a Western context. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience um, and ideas of gender performance with the women that you're working with, um, mm -hmm. and if that's something that comes up and sort of how that plays out. It does. <laughs> it comes up a lot, especially in Colombia, which, after all, is a very socially conservative environment. And a lot of what I see the women doing is drawing on some of those stereotypes of normative women's behavior as the source of their authority and their legitimacy. So they'll draw on the fact that they are nurturing mothers. They'll draw on the fact that their power comes from the fact that they are mothers within their societies. And so they have a certain um, power that comes from that as a result. And it's it's... It's hard for me to know how much I should challenge that within those spaces, right? As an outsider especially. Um, it, it comes back again to this question of essentializing. And even as we're talking about the kinds of activities that women peacebuilding do and support various forms of, of peacebuilding that women, whether secular or religious, do, we don't want to be reifying particular gender frames that attribute certain kinds of actions or activities to one gender or another. And so, all I can say is that I see it, and I analyze it, and I think about what it means, and, and the fact that they're able to both draw power and empowerment and empower themselves through drawing on some of these kind of reified gender frames, but also wanting to push them a little bit to ensure that they're um, not putting themselves in a box in a, in a way that would limit their ability to um, create larger change that would be beneficial to those of all genders within their communities. Let's see, let's go. Um, good evening, uh, and thank you. Yeah. My question has to do a bit more with kind of the long view and where this work goes now. Mm -hmm. So, recognizing that, you know, the sort of field of religious peace building remains quite small, um, with women's religious peace building being quite small within that, um, there is, I think, you know, a tremendous need for greater religious literacy and engagement in the broader fields of, of development and diplomacy and war and peace. And I think that there's also actually a hunger for it. But, but, you know, a lot of fear, but, but because it seems so complicated and because it holds the potential of, of unleashing, you know, worse, worse dynamics out there. So, um, you know, I'm just so in awe of people like you and Sean Casey and the kind of work that you're doing to translate um, religious literacy into these, into these policy spheres, but it feels like they're will not be enough graduates of Harvard Divinity School to make this happen. And there's a need to make this, this you know, religious literacy accessible yeah. and on a, on a more sort of, you know, wholesale way. So I wonder if, yeah, so there's a step change is what I'm saying is, is really needed out there. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about how that can happen. So I was a student of Ron Thiemann here at HDS. And one of the things he said that he, he always advocated for religion to have a space within the public sphere. And then when he saw the role that religion was playing in this public sphere, he's like, ah, 
what did I advocate for? <laughs> like, you reap what you sow, because there was, um, you know, then, then he saw the rise of the religious right and the incredible influence that it was having in the public sphere over the um, politics within the US. And, and he, it made him rethink what he had been advocating for, at least how he had been advocating for religion playing a role in the public square in the US. And I sometimes have that same struggle with, with my field, right? Because I'm advocating for religion to be taken seriously and to be engaged in international affairs. But then, for example, what I'm seeing right now in DC where there's this anxiety about violent extremist movements, particularly religious violent extremist movements, particularly Muslim religious extre violent extremist movements. And there's this rush to, religion's the panacea. We just need to support moderate imams. We need to support moderate interpretations of religion. We need to empower them. We need to get them out in the public sphere. We need to get them tweeting nice things about Islam. And, and on the one hand, it's wonderful that people are beginning to see the importance of engaging with religion in these efforts to address violent movements. On the other hand, I'm horrified because I see this instrumentalization of religion. It's how can we get, how can we use religious leaders and use religious ideas in order to advance our own military campaigns against um, violent extremist movements. And so I, I understand now that ambivalence that, that um, Professor Thiemann used to speak about with me in terms of advocating for religion in the public square, but, but wanting it to be done in a meaningful way. Um, I think the things that, that are promising right now within this are the development of more courses on thoughtful religious engagement within the Foreign Service Institute, for example, which is the institute that all the Foreign Service officers within the US State Department go through for their ongoing training throughout their careers. So if, you know, after they do their two-year post in Kosovo or whatever, they come back to DC for a year and they have ongoing training at FSI. And so at FSI, there's been the continued adoption of more courses looking at religious engagement and looking at thoughtful religious engagement, especially under Sean Casey's office now, as he's played more of a role in shaping some of those courses. That's helped. Um, they've also done a much better job in their general courses on a regional basis. So if you're going to Afghanistan, for example, you take courses on Afghanistan. And they didn't always have religion as an element of that. Um, so now they've increasingly ensured that some background on the forms of religion and its schools and its practices and so on is being included in all of those regional studies within FSI. Same, similar kinds of things are happening, not at the same pace, um, but are happening within the United Nations systems and within other uh, foreign governments. And there's some interaction that's happening too to ensure that they're building off of one another, um, which is positive. There's, um, there's a worry that a little bit of information can be a dangerous thing, actually. So if you're leading diplomats to think that after they take one course in religious engagement or have a little bit of background in a religious tradition um, within a particular context, they're experts on it, and they're going to know how to engage within that religious community in sensitive ways that don't inflame some of the sensitivities like those I was talking about earlier. There's a danger in that, right? So I think what... Um, the instructors have been trying to do, rightly so, is ensure that even as they give them some of these orientations, that they're also telling, continuing to emphasize the complexity, to continuing to emphasize that they're not expected to be experts, but that there's a whole range of people they can turn to if they have particular questions and to guide them. And continuing to um, 
to have at the center of some of those studies, not necessarily the answers to all the questions of how religion operates in a context or how to engage religion, but the kinds of questions that diplomats need to be asking in order to understand how to navigate within those communities in more sensitive ways and to engage in religion in more constructive ways. Uh, let's come back up into the um, colloquium group. Hi, my name is Chang Gan, and I'm a second year MDiv student in the Divinity School. Uh, myself and my family immigrated to New York when I was 12 years old. And only lately that I am having engaging conversation with scholars from mainland China. So this question might be out the realm in the context here, but then um, uh, I'm quite intrigued by uh, what is going on in the religious realm in China and relation to the world. So um, most of the scholars that I've spoken with, and they are really concerned about building up a quote-unquote constructive diplomatic relationship with the world, because they are aiming at uh, a better development of their economic situations. But however, at the same time that uh, there's a national sentiment which is deep rooted in the history of the country that uh, it's about patriotism and it's about the worry about how um, the Western uh, civilization or the Western world could undermine the government. And, and as far as the uh, the ideology of the communism government goes is that they are openly materialistic people, and they they do not want it to have religions take uh, priority or or uh, over the any governmental policy within the country. But at the same time, lately that they, they are doing better job in opening up a certain. Uh, 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 relax a little in, in terms of dealing with the religious realms that is inside the nation. However, they're still very sensitive to, um, uh, to they, their doors are completely closed uh, when dealing with religious figures yeah. outside of the country. So how do you address that, uh, that problem? <laughs> I mean, China is getting more and more influential and getting bigger and bigger. So how are we going to work this out? We cannot exclude this from that context. Yeah. Thank you. Well, now here's one where I have to, to be humble because I am no expert on China and I have not done any work within China on religious peace building. So I'm speaking without a whole lot of authority here, but just thinking about how there could be um, how to foster greater openness or conversation with Chinese authorities uh, between religious actors and on religious concerns. Um, you know, one thing, what I was talking with Jeff a little earlier about um, when in the past with political peace processes, religious leaders have not been engaged in them, but they saw themselves as stakeholders who had specific interests and needs um, that were being negotiated at the peace table, and yet they were not being included, they were not being heard, those needs were not being taken into consideration at the negotiation table. Conflict Resolution 101 theory says they become spoilers, and in fact that was often the case, that they became very threatened by those peace processes, 
because that they, they knew there were the religious concerns that were being negotiated about whether it was access to sacred space in Israel-Palestine, whether it's issues of how religious, different religious communities are going to be treated within the Constitution, whether, whether within the Constitution it's going to be, a certain state is going to be declared one religion or another, um, or a secular state, which also can create you know, a lot of concerns for religious actors. If they're, if they're not being included in those conversations, then, then they can become um, they can become resistors to them, they can become spoilers of some of, some of those processes. And so there's a danger in this argument too, I, I acknowledge, even as I'm saying it, but in having dialogue with, the, with, with Chinese authorities or any other authorities who might be resistant to the idea of engaging with religious actors, I think there's a powerful argument to be say that, look, if what your concern is, is that religious actors are going to resist you or religious actors are going to somehow make your, your policies ineffective or your agendas, you need to engage with them because otherwise they really are gonna become um, a problem for you. Otherwise they're going to resist you if they see that you are intentionally marginalizing them and seeking to disempower them. And that was the case with that we saw a lot after the, the end of the Cold War, right? Is that there had been an enforced suppression of the religious realm and then, but it didn't go away. And in fact, the, the, religious, the religions that had been suppressed or oppressed came out even more forcefully as soon as they were able to and were very resistant to a state that they had felt had been um, a threat to it. And so I, I think there, again, there's a danger to making that argument as well, right? Because then it's like, oh, that comes back to that instrumentalization. How can we engage with religious actors in order to influence them more, in order to ensure that they're acting or to make them feel that they're playing a meaningful role in policy making, to um, make them complacent? But so that's the dangerous side of it that I acknowledge. But I think there's also the powerful argument to be made that it's that it's ultimately in your benefit to listen from, to dialogue with, to understand what are the interests and needs of the religious communities so that you can take those into account so that they don't become resistant agitators to, to policies. Okay. Uh, Tom, we're gonna take the gentleman in the black right there. Hey, Darren. Hi, uh, Darren Q from UMass Boston. I, I was wondering if uh, you would say more about the, one of the points you made about parallel women's movements. Yeah. Um, in the part of the world where I work in Nigeria, um, yeah. there are quite a few parallel women's uh, NGO movements. Uh, and in some of the organizations themselves, uh, you'll see that they've set up like a, a, a women's coordinator that does women's projects. But it's been extremely difficult to get uh, the religious organizations to bring women into integrated leadership roles within the organization. Um, and so I'm curious as to whether you've seen some, I'm sure you've seen some good examples um, in your work. I'm, I, do you have some stories in terms of how they've been able to do this in yeah. terms of trying to integrate the organization? And in particular, you know, when you're dealing in a context where the religious institutions themselves are highly patriarchal, so uh, the men that run the organization you know, feel they have the religion behind them. Are there religious arguments you're hearing uh, that help to break open these organizations and balance out um, uh, the gender dynamics in them? Yep. Yeah, Thank you for the question. Um, I only hinted at this in my talk, but it's a really, it's a really important and a difficult question to answer. Because what's, what you've seen in the religious peace, okay, in the peace building field at large, a lot of these, um, 
sub-themes within peace building were created exactly because there was a gap, there was a marginalization. So religious peace building field arose because the field of peace building had marginalized religion. And so it was important to acknowledge that and to create a religious peace building field in order to empower it. The problem though, is that you're then creating a religious peace building field that doesn't come integrated into the wider peace building field. It becomes difficult because it's then operating out here and doesn't intersect with in meaningful ways um, the, the larger field of peace building. The same thing happens then within each of these sub-themes. So in the religious peace building field, what we've seen is there was a recognition that it, that it has been very much dominated by men or that, that the, especially at the high level, the, it's been men who have been in charge of these organizations and have been involved to some of the, especially to some of the international conferences or to getting the funding for their activities and so on. And so in response to that, there has been um, the proliferation of, of women's religious peacebuilding networks within these. So like Religions for Peace, for example, created the Women of Faith Network um, out of recognition that women had been marginalized from, from religious peacebuilding efforts. It's, it's a, great, um, a great motivation for creating it, right? The, the intention is, is pure in trying to, to um, ensure that there's support, there's recognition of the gap and then there's support given to those constituencies who've been marginalized. But the problem then is that um, even as the religious peacebuilding field has been siloed, the women's religious peacebuilding field becomes even more ghettoized, was the word I used in my talk. Um, that still you create these women of faith networks, but they don't get the same kind of funding and support. And then meanwhile, the main organizers of the religious peacebuilding, who are primarily but not exclusively men, think that they kind of solve the problem because, hey, we're, we supported the creation of this women of faith network. Um, but they don't necessarily recognize that those women of faith network are often um, struggling, that they don't get the kind of attention, they don't get this kind of support, they don't get the kind of engagement by international actors, they're not being invaded, invited to the international conferences and so on. Um, and so, so the, the best ways that I've seen it done is when, and, okay, but at the same time I also wanna recognize that women religious leaders themselves say that they appreciate having their own spaces um, where they truly can shape the agenda, where they don't have to constantly kind of be arguing for or resisting. Spaces where, for example, in, um, in Myanmar, to take another example um, from there, when you have a Buddhist monk and a Buddhist nun in the same room, in the same dialogue, the Buddhist nun won't speak openly unless really push, but even then you don't really want to push her too hard because um, she will always give deference to the monk who, who oftentimes serves as their teachers of the Buddhist nuns to be able to be the voice of you know, Buddhist authority within that. And so within those spaces, they often feel even more disempowered or marginalized or unable to speak openly or to speak to some of the issues that affect women in particular, like sexual violence and so on. And so they want these spaces where it's only women so that they can speak openly, so that they can raise these issues openly, so that they don't feel um, intimidated by those who have higher authority within the religious traditions. Um, but then you have this problem of ensuring that even as you create these parallel tracks, there's also ways in which they're intersecting with each other and not just further fragmenting the field of religious peace building. So where have I seen it done well? Well, 
Well, in, in terms of how did she get that position? Yeah. yeah. Is that an example of integration along these lines that, that should be emulated in some way? Well, no, I, I, def I definitely think that, of course, that that is an example that should be emulated. I mean, it was incredible, and what was incredible, too, was, was how it directly showed how when you do have religious women or, or women coming into positions of authority um, within the, in, in that case, it was the Justice and, and Peace um, office of the bishops conference that the agenda changes that the the priorities of peace building for the Catholic Church change because she brought in different um, priorities building on her experiences and what she saw as, as the most important I mean yeah that's an example to be emulated and in those places where you do see um, within the institutional or normative peace building sector, women being able to find those positions, obviously that's, that's, a, that's something to be celebrated and emulated. But the, the more difficult question is um, how to ensure that that happens. And, and I can't tell you the answer because I don't know well enough because it hasn't been analyzed well enough and I need to get out to the DRC in order to do it, exactly how it happened that she got into that position of authority within her tradition. I do know of plenty of examples um, from different places where religious women have been able to achieve um, a significant voice within religious peace building efforts. Um, the Philippines is a great example where, um, and. And bear in mind as well that the Philippines is one of the best examples of women's inclusion within peace building efforts and the peace process as well. And so perhaps there's some correlation between this, but women religious leaders have also played, like Amina Razul, have played an incredible role in, in shaping some of the activities of those engaged within the religious sector who have been supporting peace building as well. Um, I think it's in part the opportunities for, for education for religious education for, for women. And that's one of the big findings that came out of our book as well, or one of the big, big recommendations, is that um, where there's, there's good, solid religious education and access to it for women, that they're able to understand and access and interpret the texts themselves, that that results in both the recognition of some of the teachings um, and values within the tradition that support women's um, participation, because of course women pick up on that within <laughs> the scriptures in ways that men don't and lift them up. Um, but it also gives them the authority as recognized scholars within the tradition. So there's plenty, like in the Middle East actually, there's a lot of examples in Egypt and so on where women have attended Quranic schools and been able to um, to get the kind of religious education that's needed that allows them to serve as jurists, that allows them to serve as televangelists, um, that allows them to, to serve as religious authorities who can grant fatwas and so on. And it's a direct result of them having been able to access religious education um, that has given them those positions of authority that can then translate into their influence within the religious peace building sector. So there's my off the cuff attempt to respond to your question. We're going to have time for one last question. Um, you had mentioned earlier in your talk the idea that um, religions have many views about conflict and many views about gender roles. Yeah. And um, I was curious about how you help 
or enable people to find those interpretations within a culture, although you spoke a little bit about that just now, but also what, what tools or what methods um, are useful once a, a, a reading or interpretation or view is found to get that to be more broadly embraced. So, for instance, if a, if a, a leader or a, a woman leader or any other re reader finds a, a strong uh, scriptural basis for peacemaking, and if that's not what the rest of the people around are, are kind of going for at that moment, uh, how, how do you do that? <laughs> educate, educate, educate. <laughs> um, yeah, so with, with, the, with the gender interpretations and the various gender interpretations within the traditions, it, it, as you said, kind of goes back to what I was saying to Darren about the need to ensure that the um, authoritative scriptures or stories are um, put into the hands of women so that they can read them through their experiences and read their stories and, their, and, and, and often find their experiences and find teachings that empower them as women. And you know, there's a lot, um, the students who are part of the course read uh, an article by Monica Maher. Um, and in, there's a chapter in my book that looks at Israel-Palestine um, and it talks about how when women um, have been given the sacred scriptures and given the tools that they need in order to read them themselves directly and not just filtered through um, through their teachers, through their parents, through other people in their communities, um, they've found things in there that have resonated for them so personally in terms of their experiences, but also found some of those, so those teachings that empower them as women, um, that, that it has led them to have a more um, powerful voice and confidence within their communities to defend their agency within their religious traditions, including with, you know, um, with people within their family men and women within their family who, who try to constrain the kinds of activities that they engage in, particularly if they're socially or political risky activities that are, are peace building. So, so that just kind of old school Protestant Reformation, get the scripture into your hands and, and it, and it um, allows for, for some form of empowerment and direct access. Um, I think there's a lot to it. Now in terms of how do you amplify, um, we had, at the Institute a couple days ago, we had um, Sheikh Akubi, who is a Muslim uh, scholar from Syria, um, who has been living in diaspora because of the conflict going on there. But he's been doing a lot of work recently. He just wrote a book that's called Refuting ISIS. Um, and he's gone through theologically some of the, the fatwas or interpretations that ISIS has been using in order to legitimate its violence um, towards communities at large, towards minority communities, towards women. Um, and he's gone through and sort of systematically um, problematized, <laughs> complexified, um, or challenged some of those interpretations, drawing from other religious sources and, and challenging those, the, what they're claiming is authoritative within, within the tradition. But you know, he has this book, it's nice, it's printed out. Um, he has it in Arabic, he has it in, he has it in English, but then the question is, how, how do you actually ensure that this is heard, um, especially by those who might not be the elite, um, who can read it, who have access to it? And so um, we, had, we had an interesting discussion about how to engage 
um, with various youth, how to engage with um, within social media. I'm hearing myself earlier saying we want to get imams to tweet nice things about <laughs> Islam as part of the efforts to combat violent extremism. Um, but there is, there is truth to being able to use some of these new tools within technological tools and media tools to be able to lift up and really amplify some of these um, religious narratives that support peace building and that challenge some of the religious narratives of exclusion and violence. And so, you know, he's thinking along those lines. There's some really interesting things that are being done, especially by um, young peace building activists and young religious scholars to try to bring together some of the um, older, less tech savvy religious scholars, but who have a lot of authority within the traditions to bring them together with some of the tech savvy youth in order to ensure that that their voice and their teachings are really being engaged by the young people, especially the young people who are attracted to, to various violent movements. So I can connect you more with some of those folks or, or point to some, some websites and some projects that you can look at in order to understand that. Well, it's so inspiring to hear what you're doing in the realm of, of uh, religion, gender, and peace building. Um, I think you've given us all a commitment to, to continue a lot of the, uh, the kinds of focus on texts that we all have here at the school and to figure out ways to use these um, productively. It's so fascinating to hear how in the issue of um, silos, which is a huge issue in the, in the mm -hmm. university and in women's studies in particular, is right there in the work that you do. The, I do not envy you having to make a decision at the end of each meeting uh, on an action item. Um, a lot of people in this institution would be paralyzed by that, um, that mandate. So it's, uh, it's so inspiring to hear that the, the work you're doing to bring that world of decision making and the academic world of complex thinking together. Um, I just want to thank you and ask the dean to close our meeting. Thanks, Anne. Just, uh, should I yeah, please. Sorry for Disobey my own rules. It's a dean's prerogative. Um, uh, I also want to thank um, uh, Susan uh, for uh, coming up and for really a remarkable uh, range of experiences and uh, skills and, and for moments like this when it's great to be a dean of the Divinity So thank you for um, uh, all that you've done. That's good. for taking part. Um, for anyone interested in purchasing a copy of this book um, uh, on women, religion, and peace building um, uh, that Susan has uh, 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 edited, uh, which is hot off the press, we have order cards from the publisher by the door. So um, please so, pick one of these up. I don't know if that's one of them or not. It is. Um, it is, OK. Yeah, so there's It'll tell you where to go to order it. I don't think it's something you fill out and I take it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, we need to get you to uh, up the New York Times bestseller chart somehow. Um, 
We uh, welcome uh, all of you to join us again for future sessions in this monthly series and to share invitation with colleagues and friends. We want this to build and grow and become something of um, uh, real significance and importance. Our next event is on October 15th, and the title will be Making Peace with Islam, <clears throat> Islamic Approaches to Peacemaking. And um, uh, the speaker will be Nathan Funk, um, um, and will dovetail to the launch of a new lecture series at Harvard on Islam and the Practice of Peace, sponsored by the um, Al-Walid Islamic Studies Program and the RPP, a joint uh, sponsorship. So please um, uh, come to that on October 15th. Um, we've set up a new mailing list, um, so even if you've received emails from us in the past, uh, if you've not yet filled out our online mailing list form, please be sure to visit our RPP website, fill out the form if you wish to receive further uh, announcements. RPP will soon be launching a new website on which we'll be listing other events on this topic happening at Harvard and in the local area. So please stay tuned for that as we keep refining our communications. And finally, if you're enthusiastic about what we're doing here, and how could you not be, um, and would like to contribute as a regular volunteer or support the RPP initiative in other ways, please be in touch with RPP's research associate, Leslie Hood, um, whose contact info you can find on the website. So please help us, get behind us, uh, spread the word, uh, and, um, and get people interested. So yes, do please stay, uh, stay around. There's plenty of food and drink at the back. Uh, help yourselves, and thank you so much for coming. And again, thank you, Susan, for being here.